0: This morning, uh, we're going to continue our Hebrew series from where we left off in May, so it's been a while. Um, so if you're new here tonight, uh, this morning and you're thinking to yourself, oh, Hebrews 4, we're just landing in it. Well, it's okay, I'll give you some plenty of context um, because I'm sure a few of us would have forgotten too. Um, and I need to give a disclaimer that um, because I've just been in Palm Island last, w- uh, this part, last past week, um, I feel I need to talk about it as we go. So um, I'm going to try and mash together <coughs> Hebrews 4.14 to 5.10 with uh, my experiences in Palm Island. This will be the very first sermon you've ever heard which does this. So you, you have very unique experiences at Mary Creek Anglican. Um, but actually it's interesting how there were some vivid illustrations of some of the things that are in this passage from what I saw. Let me remind you of the context of he, Hebrews Four, at least, it opens by encouraging the Christians uh, who are receiving this letter to not give up in their faith, to go all the way to the end. Uh, it uses this phrase, um, uh, the Sabbath rest of God, and um, it says, you know, go all the way to the end, cross the finish line. Like the Olympic long distance athletes who've been watching the last two weeks in Rio, they must enter into God's eternal Sabbath rest his eternal peace, his his eternity, his his, um, rest from sin. Um, You need to stop working for your salvation uh, and enter into his righteousness and go all the way until you die or until Jesus returns. And how do you finish, uh, cross the finish line? You might remember I used that phrase that we should work to stop working. In other words, work to strip away all the things that, you do um, that are attempts to try and make yourself worth something to God. Um, Work to hand over uh, all your attempts to find significance away from God. You work to stop working. It's like a workaholic that works too much. They need to force themselves to write a holiday in the diary. That's working to stop working. They need to force themselves to come home uh, early enough to have dinner with the family. Um, they have to you know it's a, it's a discipline isn't it to turn off the email on the weekend that's working to stop working. So two, we should do everything we can to allow Jesus to be our Savior. We should stop working so hard so that He can save us so that we can finish the race and enter into his rest, live your life in the power of the Holy Spirit, make your identity and self-worth in Jesus Christ. So that's the context that gets us to where we are. Now, and now in 4 verse 14 to 5 verse 10, the writer to the Hebrews tells us to do something really important. If you're going to get to the end of this race, what you've got to do is this. And it's summarized in verse 16 of chapter 4, it's on your booklet. Approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In other words, don't hold back. Life is a struggle especially when you realise how far you are from God's perfect standard of holiness and obedience, but you don't need to be afraid. God wants you to approach Jesus. He's the one sitting on the throne, asking to be your Lord. God wants you to pray and ask him into your life. God wants you to ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins. And so this begs the question, for anyone who reads this, who's really thinking about this clearly, well, how can I just go up to him and do that? How can I just go up to the throne of grace and ask him to do that? How can I have confidence in this? How will I know for a start that he will accept me? How will I know that he even gets who I am and can relate to me? How do I know that he's even got the ability to do all of these things? These are all really good questions to ask. And the passage has two really clear answers. It says... You can approach Jesus as our great high priest, and I'll explain a bit what the great high priest bit means in a second. But you can, you can approach Jesus as your great high priest, one, because he's experienced, two, because he's qualified. That's pretty much it. That's what the whole passage says. He's experienced and qualified. So let's look at what, how that works. So approach Jesus, the great high priest, because he's experienced. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. So who's this high priest? The high priest was the the supreme religious leader of Israel. Uh, It's an office of high priest that is um, hereditary. It went through one of the tribes of Israel. Um, It started in Aaron, um, the person of Aaron, the brother of Moses, in the Levite tribe. And the high priest had to be a whole person, like without physical um, problems, physical defects, and they had to be holy in their conduct. High priest was a bit like the archbishop in that they oversaw all the other priests that were subservient to them. And the high priest could do what the other priests did in offering sacrifices, but only spe- certain special functions are given to him. And the Hebrew people would go to this high priest in order to know the will of God. The high priest had a special role to offer a sin, offering not only for the sins of the whole congregation or of the whole people but also for himself and the most important duty of the high priest was to conduct the service of the day of atonement the tenth day of the seventh (coughs) month of every year only he was allowed to enter into the temple into the most holy of places behind the veil to stand before God and then having made a sacrifice for himself because he was a sinner he had to do it then he would make a sacrifice for the people he would bring the blood into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle it on the mercy seat during the year that had just ended. For the, sins, for the sins committed during the year just ended. And the writer of the letter to the Hebrews builds a case through this whole letter that he says, well, you, you know about the high priests that we've had since the time of Moses, you know, well, since Aaron, his brother. But now Jesus, he's the great high priest. He's the high priest of high priests. Jesus has offered the ultimate sacrifice for sins, which is himself. This is a sacrifice that's perfect, it's once and for all. Through Christ's sacrifice for us, we are made holy. By entering God's presence on our behalf, Christ has secured for us an eternal redemption, it says later in Hebrews in chapter 9, verse 12. Paul the Apostle says it in a different way, he says, For there is one God... And there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2 verse 5. Now you might remember that this whole letter of Hebrews, uh, the letter to the Hebrews, is written to a bunch of Jewish Christians who are starting to be a little bit unsure about their Christian faith. They're starting to think, I'm not sure if I can trust in Jesus. I reckon it might be easier to go back to my old religion and do the law and just fulfil all the kind of requirements that my forefathers kept in their religious duties as Jews some of them were wondering whether or not Jesus is the ultimate mediator can he really forgive sins perhaps they'd heard some some different teaching and so they're questioning their faith some of them were wondering whether it would be easier just to give up on Jesus so the writer is attempting to show them that really he is the high priest, the great high priest they can stick with him He's showing them why they should approach Jesus' throne and know that he truly is their high priest. He shows them why he's the ultimate leader. Now, whenever you get a leadership contest, um, it always ends up in a discussion about who's the most experienced and who's the most qualified. So you'll see in the American presidential race, and I've mentioned this before, I'm obsessed with it, um, uh, why Hillary Clinton, she's the most experienced. This is, what, this is the argument the Democrats putting. Not I'm not... But maybe. Um, she's the most experienced. So what has she done? She worked uh, with, for children, advocating for the rights of children and, she, uh, and, and, and women's rights in the workplace. And then she went on to uh, you know, be the First Lady, of course, and then uh, Secretary of State. So she, she's the most experienced. And, and then also they, they um, uh, talk about her qualifications. Barack Obama famously said, there has never been a candidate more qualified to become the president than Hillary Clinton. Not me, not Bill, he said, which is kind of funny. Anyway, it's true, probably. So this is what you do when you're trying to persuade people to vote for someone. And, and this is what is happening in this passage. He's the most experienced. At what? What's he mo- the most experienced at? Is Jesus really experienced? You should be asking yourself. Can I really relate to him as my great high priest? He's supposed to mediate on my behalf, but does he even understand who I am? You'd want your mediator to get you, wouldn't you? Some people think that Jesus isn't a very good mediator. He's not a very good inspiration, some people might say, for sticking at your faith through thick and thin, right to the finish line. They might say, well, of course Jesus did that. He was the son of God, so he had an unfair advantage, you know. It's not much of an inspiration, I mean... You know, compared with me, it's like it's like uh, you know when uh, musicians compare themselves, like you know, a jazz trumpet player comparing themselves to Miles Davis. I mean, it's like, like you know, it's not or a sprinter getting compared to Hussein Bolt. You know, like you just feel like small, don't you? Or a, or a preacher being compared to John Stott or. Um, martin lloyd jones or one of those you know tim keller types i I saw this sarcastic facebook meme and said if you really want to encourage your pastor start by saying you know john piper having said that you know it's not a you know comparing yourself to the ultimate feels not very satisfying but the writer to the hebrews says actually no you can you can draw inspiration from jesus as your great high priest because he's experienced Yes, He is the perfect Savior. Yes, He is Jesus, the Son of God, as it says in verse 14. But we can relate to Him. We can look to Him as our inspiration to keep going. He is not disqualified from sharing in our troubles, and He does empathize with our weaknesses. And this is because He has endured every trial that we are likely to experience, and I'm going to talk about more about this later, and remained steady and committed to His Father in heaven, and He's calling, calling us through all of that. And it says Jesus has passed through the heavens, verse 14, And we had to mentally picture this vision of him just passing through the heavens into the throne room of God. It's kind of a phrase. don't want to get too obsessed with what the plural of heavens means. It's just an expression in the New Testament. Um, Later it says, He is exalted high above the heavens. Or in Ephesians 4.10 it says, He has ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. He has gone from earth into the throne room of God He's done it. He's finished the marathon, the spiritual marathon. Therefore, you can have inspiration from him. No one else has done that. Jesus is the ultimate example of what Joseph Campbell calls the hero's journey or the mono myth. You know, Frodo battled the odds and destroyed the ring in the fires of Mount Doom. Luke Skywalker grew up as a farm boy and blew up the Death Star. Simba is cast out of the of the you know of, of the uh, you know the animals and goes into the desert and then has a bit of an experience and comes back as king. These are just hero stories in pop culture but because they show the hero fighting against all odds we we can connect with that but Jesus is the ultimate hero in that respect. And the difference is of course that it, that it's a true story. Therefore, in Jesus, we have a powerful motivation for persevering in faith, in obedience. Look at what he went through and where he ended up. But look at what else it says, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. So we've got to remember, just because he went through into the throne room of God, it does not mean that he's any less human. Jesus is fully human and fully divine. And this is one of the great mysteries of the Christian faith. And the letter to the Hebrews has already dealt with this idea by saying that in order to become a merciful and faithful high priest, the Son of God had to be made like his brothers in all respects and that he is able to help those enduring trial because he himself endured trial and suffering, says back in chapter 2. So we have in heaven a great high priest who also has suffered and been tempted in every way like us. Now, as I said earlier, I would talk a bit about Palm Island. No one has jumped to that. So bear with me, but it's not too random. Um, so Palm Island, if you don't know, is the largest Aboriginal community in Australia. It's about 3,000 people. It's just north of Townsville, a four-hour barge trip out from... Um, from Lucinda, which is north of Townsville, or it's a 20-minute flight. And uh, has about, yeah, 3,000 people. And it does experience great poverty. In some ways, it feels a bit like a developing country. Three-quarters of the population are unemployed. There's problems with drugs, hard drugs now, ice and heroin. And there's uh, mental health problems too. And we were led by um, a man on this trip, I was away with um, some of the leaders from Arrow, which is a, a thing that I lead on which uh, develops leaders in the church in Australia. And we were led by our, an organisation called Australians Together that builds relationships in the church between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. And the leader of the group that we went on was called a guy called Richard Cassidy, who's a traditional owner of Palm Island, an Indigenous man. He's also an United church minister. Uh, Now, Palm Island is far enough away from the mainland that life is really tough. Everything is expensive. We went into the supermarket. Everything's like three times the price of a Melbourne supermarket. And that's not an exaggeration because it's so difficult to get there and the population is small and people don't have much money. (laughs) Um, There's also nothing much to do. There's no sport teams anymore. There used to be. Um, You know, people don't have employment. so there's this kind of a feeling of depression around the place. Any kind of progress that is made there, they say it feels like three steps forward, two steps back. In addition, the island isn't one language group uh, because of his- for historical reasons, 42 different language groups are mixed together onto the island. So many of the people don't even own the island in terms of a, in a tribal sense as theirs, you know. But just because of historical reasons, they live there now. So uh, one of the consequences of that is there's rubbish everywhere. Um, people don't care necessarily about leaving their rubbish. So you'll be in a pristine, you know, area. Normally, you know, in the rainforest, and there'll be cans of beer everywhere. That's one part of the picture. The other part of the picture are the people that we met Local people like Richard Cassidy who have, amazingly enough, a passionate faith in Jesus. Despite the struggles, despite the sadness in their stories, despite the fact that they have sons in jail. I met one guy who has four sons in jail, he was telling us. Relatives on drugs. Yet they trust in Jesus. So many people on the island. Uh, On the monument right in the centre of the square, there's a thing that tells the story of of their island. And at the end it says... We believe we have lasted all this time because of our strong faith in God and uh, the strong Christian activity on the island amongst the people. Um, and I think one of the reasons why they, Palm Island people who are Christians can relate to Jesus is because they see a saviour who has suffered like them. They see a saviour who they can relate to in a way, maybe more so than we can as wealthy, comfortable people. There's an identity that they have there that they can they look at Jesus and they say, I know that you understand me, so I can praise you. Jesus know what it's like to struggle. The Apostle Paul used an expression that has become famous, and he said that he has a thorn in his side. So all through the Apostle Paul's life, he had this thing that he struggled with, and he doesn't name it, which is probably a good thing because it means that we can identify with that it's, you know, because we all have a thorn. And there's one thing that I've learned as a pastor is that you get to know someone, they've got a thorn or, or several. It's that thing that you struggle with in your life. If, you, if you're struggling with something, don't think you're the only one. Um, perhaps you are lonely, you've got a broken family perhaps, relationships, anxiety, uh, an addiction, feeling of worthlessness. Divorced, insecurities, you desperately want your life to change, to go in a different direction, sexual addiction, and so on and so on and so on. Everyone has a thorn, everyone in this room. If we dig, if we dig, if we sit down with you long enough, the thorn will appear. If you are a teenager or a young adult and you say, I don't have a thorn, don't be foolish. You just don't realise that the thorn is around the corner if it's not there already. You know, sometimes young adults can live in this illusion in in your early 20s where you go, life is so amazing, and yet you haven't yet been rejected from your job. You haven't yet, you know, know what it's like to struggle with loneliness. You haven't yet um, had some kind of chronic illness come into your life or into a close relative or friend's life. Maybe you haven't yet faced up to the suffering around you because you'll get blinded to it. It will come. Uh He comes with age. So whether you've already realised your thorn or you're yet to realise your thorn, it will come. And at that point, you need to know Jesus struggled right from the moment he was born. Born into a political, unstable environment. His parents were refugees straight away. He was a refugee straight away. When he was in his ministry, he was tempted by the devil like no one else has been before. He was emotionally affected by the death of his close friend Lazarus and the general suffering around him. There were plots to kill him, his disciples betrayed him, and he was unjustly arrested and executed on a Roman cross. There's a few thorns. So he knows what it's like to struggle as a human being. He understands your struggles. He is qualified to be your great high priest because he's experienced. He's experienced in a transcendent divine way because he's gone through the heavens into the throne room of God, but also because he's lived the life of a full human being. So whatever your mix of the fall is, or whatever your thorn in the side is, here is what you must, must do: Approach the throne of God, of grace, with boldness, so that you may receive mercy and find grace to help when you're really struggling. Well secondly, and I'll spend less time on this He's experienced, but he's also qualified. We don't often think about Jesus' qualifications. He didn't go to uni to prove himself to be the Messiah or the great high priest, yet Hebrews makes this argument. When we were in Palm Island, um, we were traveling around with this man I said earlier, Richard Cassidy, the, the traditional owner. It was the land of his great-grandparents. He could do an official welcome to country for us. And this gave us a privilege of access to the community as white people. Normally when white, well, well-dressed, middle-class people walk around Palm Island what happens is people look at them and say, what are you here for? You know, And that actually did happen to us a few times when we were on our own because we were sent out on our own. We were you, are you the government. You know, But with Richard, it's like, oh, that's fine. You're one of Richard's mob. You can come here. He was qualified as a traditional owner. He gave us access. Richard could be our mediator on Palm Island. Jesus, too, is the most qualified to do what he has to do for us as the great high priest. First, a high priest must be a human who is able to empathise with those whom he represents. And secondly, a high priest must be divinely appointed to his offices. That's what it says in the passage in chapter 5, verse 1 to 4. A Jewish high priest represented human beings where their responsibility to God is concerned. Uh, let me read it out to you. Every high priest chosen from among mortals is put in charge of things pertaining to God on their behalf to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He's able to deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is subject to weakness. So he has to be a human being himself. His job was to present the people's gifts and sin offerings or sacrifices to God. But he can't just do this in a, in a calculated, cold way. There were problems with that in the past for Israel, that the religious ceremonies were done in this kind of emotionally detached way. But there was a requirement that the high priest really felt it that when they were offering the sin offerings, they were sorry, and they, and they were sorry for the sins of the people, and they were humble before God. Um, it couldn't be arrogant. It wasn't like you could do the sacrifice before God and say, Well, I'm, I'm a great holy man, and my stupid people, I'm sorry. It's not like that. It's not an embarrassed thing. It's, it's actually entering into it as a mediator, representing the people. This is why they had to make atonement for their own sins not just the sins of the people but not jesus one major thing that sets him apart as a great high priest he was the only sinless great high priest he was without sin he could do this with the perfect approach the per- perfect empathy the perfect understanding listen to verse seven and eight in the days of his flesh jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears You don't think of Jesus, you know, often as the emotional priest. But that's what he is. To the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. At the Garden of Gethsemane, before his arrest, (coughs) Jesus wept and sweated blood. He struggled with what he must go through. But out of love for his Father in heaven and love for his people, he was obedient. So he's qualified. He's experienced and he's qualified. He fulfills that part of the qualifications to be a human being who can empathize on the part of the people. He learned obedience through his suffering. This didn't mean that he was once disobedient, then he learned to be obedient, but rather the suffering that he experienced is linked to the obedience. Uh, you know, when Jesus came to be baptized to John the Baptist, John the Baptist said, I don't need to baptize you, you're sinless. But he said, No, actually, I need to do this to fulfill righteousness. And the things that Jesus did and experienced um, that sort of made him the son of God and made him the Messiah actually were closely tied in with suffering. His sufferings were the necessary price of his obedience. They were part and parcel of his obedience. This is how he fulfilled the will of God. And this was a learning experience. He's He's also qualified because he's called by God. So high priests can't just nominate themselves. You don't earn the right to be the high priest. You can't set yourself up as a high priest. And so Jesus didn't set himself up as the great high priest either. He's called by God. Look at verse 5. So also Christ did not glorify himself in becoming a high priest, but was appointed by the one who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. In fact, he was a special kind of high priest, and I'm, unfortunately, I have to go over this quickly and needs a lot of time, but I'll just mention it. He was a special kind of high priest. He was in the order of Melchizedek. Look at verse 6. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And this is a quote from Psalm 110, verse 4, and it's applied to Jesus in a special new way in the Bible, in a way that we haven't seen before. He isn't any. Normal kind of high priest. He's also a king. He's a king priest. Aaron, who all the high priests are in the line of before that, are in the priestly tribe of Levi. But David, who all the kings are in the line of, are in the, priestly, are in the kingly tribe of Judah. So linking Jesus to the order of Melchizedek, um, who appears in Genesis 14, Melchizedek was a king priest. So let me tell you about Melchizedek. Um, he was the king of Salem, which we think was probably the ancient name for Jerusalem. That's where you get Jerusalem. And he's the priest of God Most High. And when Jerusalem came into the hands of King David, or when David became a king, and Israel and, and Jerusalem became Israel's capital city, he and his heirs became successors to Melchizedek's kingship. But from then on, there was this kind of separation between the king and the priestly role in Israel. There was never any king-priest as such. Um, there were attempts at uniting the king and the priest together into one role later on in, uh, towards the, um, in the intertestamental period between the Old and New Testament, but they that were was, that was just kind of failed, failed attempts. But in Jesus, this is the first time we see this role of king and priest linked together. Verse 9, And having been made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him having been designated by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He is the priest, he is the king, and he's also the prophet. We don't talk about that in this passage. Jesus fulfills all of these requirements. He's qualified like no other man has ever been qualified to be your great high priest. He's also experienced like no one else has. So what does this mean for you? Why this technical theological stuff? Basically, this is why. Let me appeal to you approach Jesus as your great high priest your mediator with God who can truly provide forgiveness for you you can approach him with confidence you can approach him knowing that he has the experience of the divine son who has gone into the heavens and also as the human being who suffered everything just like you have suffered And you can be sure that he's qualified because he was chosen by God from among humans, but was without sin. And he pleads on your behalf with understanding before God. Let's finish and pray. Lord God, thank you for calling Jesus to be our great high priest and being our mediator and all that that means. Thank you that Jesus is not some removed, far off uh, high priest, but one who understands us, who is qualified, who is experienced. And pray that um, we can have the boldness to approach him and ask him into our lives and stick with him so that we can uh, finish the race as Christians. Amen.